I think I finally found proof that the UK, or at least Europe, has had too much summer, and it's time that they handed it over to us. Okay. There is a sunflower garden uh-huh. in the UK that's had to ask people to stop getting naked in their sunflower garden and taking pictures. I mean, come on. We would never do that here. It's time to give us the sun. Getting naked in a sunflower garden and taking photos of yourself naked among the sunflowers. Yeah, I imagine with the sunflowers uh, appropriately positioned to block any uh, rudy bits. (laughs) That's great. That's so UK. For some reason, that just strikes me as being a very UK trend to uh, take X-rated photos of yourself with sunflowers blurring out the naughty bits. Yes, stop it. You are losing the plot over there. The sunstroke is getting to you. Um, Give it to us. Please. <laughs> I concur. Uh, kia ora, this is Newsville. I'm Emil. I'm Jess, and this is what's worth talking about. National plans to swap free prescriptions for 13 new cancer treatments, but one cancer doctor tells us it's not money well spent. Also, after the first trial resulted in a hung jury, David Benbow is standing trial for murder a second time. So what has changed? And FIFA's World Cup is over, and it's time to pay the bill. And the bill is big. And you know we love a strange world record, and I can promise today's one is a doozy. All that's coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. The National Party has made a big health promise. If it gets into power, it plans to put $280 million towards cancer treatments over four years. This will target 13 specific cancers, and the money will be ring-fenced. And how will they pay for it? Well, the national leader, Christopher Luxon, says they'll row back on free prescriptions for everyone and instead focus on just superannuants and those on low incomes. He says New Zealanders deserve treatment that is already available in Australia. And so New Zealanders suffering from these cancers who have exhausted available treatments here in New Zealand currently face a really bleak choice. And that choice is either to give up or it's to head up overseas or to mortgage their home or try and raise a significant amount of money from friends and family to fund the treatment themselves. And we want all cancer patients here in New Zealand to be armed with hope and positivity as they go through this battle against this terrible disease. Not helplessness, not frustration and not desperation. National wants these New Zealanders to stay in New Zealand and to fight their cancer with the full support of a world-class health system. This all sounds like a good idea, but is it? Well, to help us dig into this plan, we're joined now by Chris Jackson, a professor in cancer medicine at Otago University. Chris, kia ora. Kia ora. What is your immediate reaction to this plan? Will this improve the situation for people with cancer in Aotearoa? Well, I think what people know is that the gap uh, between what's best for cancer treatment and what's available in New Zealand is growing, and it's only got bigger over recent years. Certainly when it comes to cancer drug funding, uh, we know that the UK, Canada and Australia have had better access for quite some time than we have, and that gap has got bigger. It's got even worse since the immune therapy drugs uh, came into uh, into force, where that gap between the, the best possible treatments available in other countries has not been available in New Zealand. And that's largely driven by the extraordinarily high cost of these medicines. These are not cheap drugs. They can be $10,000, $15,000 each month per patient, uh, and so they're extraordinarily expensive. And every country's struggling to fund them. They're probably the biggest burning bridge of all in cancer at the moment is the waiting lists, mm-hmm. because we just don't have the staff available. And one of the potential unintended consequences of a policy like this is if you just fund the drugs and you don't fund the staff, 
then who's going to give them? But if I had $200 million to spend on cancer, I probably would put it into the staff first. And it's taking away free prescriptions, I suppose, universal free prescriptions. Are there dangers to taking away that initiative, do you think? I certainly know that when I have patients um, with cancer who I start on chemo, they might need three or four different anti-nausea drugs. And so that adds up pretty quickly when they're needing all those additional repeat prescriptions every month. Sure, they had a cap when they become free, but there's co-payments until that time. And so people being able to just get those free prescriptions has made a palpable difference to many people. And I must say, I'm a little uncomfortable with the notion of politicians picking winners, uh, what areas should be funded uh, in terms of which drugs should be funded, because that's actually Pharmac's job to work out what should get done. In terms of the cancer drug prioritisation, the uh, Cancer Agency report, which actually I helped write, uh, we looked at very carefully what the gaps were and we prioritised that. We only did that for cancer drugs. We weren't looking at blood cancer drugs. We weren't looking at diabetes. We weren't looking at you know, hepatitis. We weren't looking at vaccination. None of that. That's what Pharmac does as they weigh that up. And whilst I've always given Pharmac a hard time about you know focusing on the importance of cancer and so on, um, it's absolutely their role to make those very difficult prioritisation decisions between those different areas. So I think it's a well-intentioned policy. It acknowledges the fact that our cancer system isn't performing as highly as we'd like it to, and it's indicating that National want to make that better. But I think if you ask the experts in the system, how do you make cancer care better, drug is only a small component of a, a, a much broader system that we want to see improved. Really fascinating stuff. Professor Chris Jackson, Professor in Cancer Medicine at Otago University, thank you so much for joining us today. Kia A rope-jumping cat is the latest holder of a Guinness World Record. So we want to hear from you pet parents. What special talent does your furry friend have that could bring glory and fame to you both? Let us know. You can find us on TikTok or Insta. Search up Newsable NZ. And we also have an email address, newsable at stuff.co.nz. Pictures, very much welcome. The high-profile retrial of David Benbo, who's accused of murdering his childhood friend Michael McGrath, has started in the High Court in Christchurch. That killing is said to have happened in 2017 after McGrath started a relationship with Benbo's former partner. And this case stands out because despite McGrath's disappearance, no body was ever actually found. And of course, the case has been before the court before. Stuff's Michael Wright is covering the trial and he joins us now. Remind us, why is a retrial being held here? Uh, so if yeah, listeners are interested, they may have seen or heard that David Benbow stood trial earlier this year and the jury in that case was unable to reach a verdict after several days' deliberation. So as a result, the Crown has decided to pursue the case again and David Benbow is standing trial a second time several months later. So, Michael, can you just tell us, how does a retrial work? Does it follow exactly the same format as the first trial with the same sort of information provided to, to people and hopefully a different jury comes to a verdict or, or will new information be introduced here as well? So the format is essentially the same. Um, David Benbow is being tried on a charge of murder before a jury in the High Court in Christchurch. That doesn't change. In terms of the content of this trial, it will be different this time around. The judge stressed as much in some of his opening remarks to the jury on the first day that some of the evidence that was heard in the first trial will not be heard in the second and vice versa. So there was there was some key evidence last time that was heavily contested by both sides. So we'll wait and see basically what exactly has changed, but there will be some changes. We know that much. 
And Michael, in terms of the evidence the court will hear, do we know if any new evidence will be introduced in the retrial? The Crown has, has read out their list of witnesses, as they have to do in case jurors know anybody, that sort of thing. And we know that some names have changed. So things will be different in some form. It just remains to be seen uh, exactly how, I guess. In what stage of the retrial are we at at the moment? So yesterday was the first day. There was no trial proper. The jury was impaneled, as they like to say, which basically means names get called and 12 people end up in the jury box. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there were some legal arguments that happened behind the scenes, if you like. Uh, So Tuesday morning is when we will have this trial start proper. The Crown will open, likely we'll hear from the defence this afternoon. And those are always, if you've covered trials or, or seen court coverage, Always interesting because both sides show their hands to an extent and you get the, not the guts of their case, but you get a very good outline of their case and and what's likely to come from them. Well, it is a fascinating case and we will keep an eye on any developments there. Michael Wright, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Cheers. Up next, inside the lavish life of a FIFA executive, complete with hotel suites and private jets. It sounds a lot easier than being a player, to be honest. And hey, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and follow us on your favourite podcast platform. It'll help other people find us. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that I think Chris, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. It, it, yeah, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. That's Nothing if in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. The Women's World Cup, which of course wrapped up on Sunday night with Spain taking the baubles, was without a shadow of doubt a rip-roaring, record-breaking success. But an interesting component of it is that it also brought us into the orbit of FIFA, you know, this amazing and vast organisation which very much does things its own way, particularly when it comes to respecting contracts and spending money. Uh, and Stuff's Dana Johansson has been looking into this a wee bit and joins us now to chat. Kia ora. Kia ora, Emil. Kind of weird in retrospect having FIFA here, right? Because it's this massive global organisation. It's sort of like having like a UN summit here or something in a way. Yeah, it's just offered this curious glimpse into the world of what is really the biggest sporting organisation in the world and just the machinery of it. And it's just this kind of vast ecosystem yeah. in a way. Yeah. yeah, ecosystem's a nice way to think about it, actually. And like, I mean, you're you're looking into this at the moment for, for work. And one of the things that we were chatting about earlier is how FIFA were doing things that we in New Zealand might sort of look at and be like, what are you up to? The hotels, for example. Yeah. Um, well, I think if, if anyone was around Park Hyatt on the Auckland waterfront, you would have seen just a swarm of people in blue suits and white trainers. Um, that was really, the Park Hyatt was really base camp for FIFA during this tournament. But of course, with, with some of the VIPs that were here, there's of course a two-tier system and VIPs Which in kind FIFA of defeats, world. defeats the purpose, in my <laughs> opinion, but you do you, FIFA. They were sort of flying in and around different host cities in New Zealand and Australia, but they kept their booking at the Park Hyatt open, or they had their suite held for them, because of course, checking in and checking out, that's for the players. We just just keep it open, thank you very much. We'll keep a hotel room on retainer for when we need it. Then there is the matter of um, what what you've got to say is a remarkable insistence on contracts being followed to the letter of the law when it comes to sponsorship. 
with anything to do with FIFA, there is just rigid adherence to the rules and guidelines. But yeah, it gets kind of to the point of absurdity at times. Um, so one of the things is, is their strict clean stadia policy. Uh-huh. So that operates on a macro level in terms of the, the stadium name itself, which is why it couldn't be Sky Stadium in Wellington or Wellington Regional Stadium mm-hmm. for the duration of the tournament. But it also comes down to like really small things like the... TVs and the refrigerators and the air conditioning units at stadium venues. While all of these hotel rooms on retainer and, and, and so on and so forth might might be a bit funny and incongruous to us, there is a serious subtext to it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And like you, you look at kind of, you've got FIFA officials flying around in private jets, for example, um, through the duration of this tournament. And you've got other teams that were competing here that had to crowdfund just to get here mm. um, and to be have, have the resource that they need to be able to compete out there on the pitch. So, um, yeah, it's a massive deal. Um, I guess, you know, players will be, will feel rightly aggrieved if, if they look and see what FIFA are spending and not just them, but they're sort of the national federations as well. Dana Johansson, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Some big news broke at the end of last week, Jess. Uh, I can scarcely believe that it flew over our radar, actually. Uh, Shame on us. Tell me, what have we missed? We have missed Kit Kat, the 13-year-old cat who, at the end of last week, broke the Guinness World Record for feline rope jumping. Uh, Kit Kat jumped over a rope successfully nine times in 60 seconds. Uh, which is quite an achievement if you think about it. It doesn't sound like a lot, but I suppose if you've got four legs to get over that rope, it's actually quite a lot more effort than it is with just two. And the thing is, it's a cat (laughs) as well. It's It's a a cat. cat. I think that's the key point, is that it's a cat, and someone managed to train it to uh, rope jump. Not on on command, you would say, otherwise it would be doing a lot more than nine Mm. in 60 seconds, Mm. but, um, you know, to at least manifest some sort of uh, obedience in a cat, which is easier to see than done, I can say from experience. Uh, Kit Kat reportedly has been training since he first jumped a rope that fateful day uh, 12 and a half years ago when he was six months old. Oh, um, six months old. Yep. He's been training so hard for this. He has. And finally he's done it. It's a it's a, it's a, a real, it's a happy story this one. It's like Rocky, um, cat edition. Um, when asked for comment, Kit Kat said, uh, meow, meow, hiss. Kit Kat joins other Guinness World Record celebrity animals, such as Beanie. Uh, Beanie holds the record for the most basketball slam dunks by Rabbit with seven in one oh. minute. That seems like a, a, a more colossal achievement to me, tra- training yeah, it. No offence to Kit Kat, but that seems much more impressive for a bunny. Yeah, I agree. Um, Norman um, holds the record for the fastest 30 metres travelled by a dog on both a bicycle and a scooter, um, 20 seconds on a scooter and, and 55 seconds on a bike. He's faster on a scooter? Well, there you go. Yeah. I guess a scooter is probably easier to operate in for, terms for of the dog, limbs yes. and things for a dog. Do you think? Yeah. Getting the pedals for, for a, uh, a bike, sort of, yeah. when you're a dog, 
and the balancing. I don't even know. He's, he's, he's amazing. He's done that at all, let alone in 55 seconds. And I, I just can't help but think of the owners that are actually spending time training their pets to do this. Bless them. Bless them. I am going to head straight home after this and start training McNulty up to do something. I'm not sure what at the moment. She could only challenge the record holders in um, spite and... <laughs> um, uh, and disappearing without explanation for days on end and maybe eating, although I imagine she'd face some pretty stiff competition. Yeah, indeed. But yes, we want to hear about your record-breaking animals as well, so get in touch with us, Newsable NZ on TikTok or Insta, or send us an email, newsable at stuff.co.nz. But I think that's Newsable for today. I'm Emile Donovan. I'm Jessica McCarthy. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you tomorrow. If you like this podcast, please support our work visit stuff.co.nz support.